world's most valuable company introduces some very expensive goggles. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Joining us now is Nick Seipel from the great state of Tennessee. Good to see you as always, Nick. Uh, great to be here with you, Ricky. So yesterday, Apple presented the Vision Pro, an augmented reality headset in its first major new product since 2014. It's going to sell for about $3,500 and is available early next year. Huge products launched yesterday. What was your reaction to the overall presentation and even the price point? Yeah, I mean, the product launch, uh, unlike other maybe big Apple reveals previously, this is very much telegraphed. You could have opened up any kind of big business publication yesterday and said, hey, Apple's revealing a new product, which is maybe a little different than, than some of the reveals um, in the past. However, you look at the, the hardware, uh, certainly interesting, as Apple always is, uh, immediately stands out. No hand controllers for this kind of augmented reality device, very different than what you're getting with, with Oculus or some others um, on the market. Really have to have some sophisticated 3D sensing technology to be able to make that take place, to be able to see what your hands are doing in all types of lighting from all types of, of angles. And it seems they have really some sophisticated technology there. The other thing that, that stood out to me, it does have a battery pack that attaches via a cord. A lot of people talked about that. Looks a little bit awkward, not maybe as, as sleek as you might expect from an Apple product, but clearly the company focused on the weight of, of, of the device. If you think about the Oculus is out there, sometimes the battery gets pretty heavy. All that weight on your head can maybe weigh on some of the extended wear issues. So that um, that, that maybe uh, explains the reasoning uh, behind that. Um, but the presentation, I think, overall uh, uh, was very interesting as well. Unlike you know the big competitor, uh, Meta, which has changed the company of their name to kind of get behind the Metaverse hype, you're really not seeing, you didn't see Apple mention Metaverse or AI really a single time in their presentation. They talked about machine learning, um, about spatial computing, really bringing to, to the fore a new type of, of computing that we haven't seen before, focusing on the augmented reality side of things. So things like we're going to project your eyes onto this uh, onto this device externally, so that other folks that are in the room not participating in the experience know what's going on. So definitely a different focus uh, um, to Apple, more about augmented reality than, than some of these other folks. And you know certainly the price point stands out. Uh, you're looking at the a few hundred dollars for the competing Meta device, Apple coming out at thirty five hundred dollars, very expensive. But I think that reflects some of the hardware under the hood. They've got the M2 chip, which they use in a number of their you know MacBook devices. This is a this is a you know. Uh, computer quality chip. And along with that, they have their R1 chip that's really going to be doing a lot of the sensing. So really some hefty hardware there, which maybe reflects the price point. Uh, could, could other competitors replicate this at a similar price point? I don't know. But Apple has certainly delivered a top-of-the-line device, which reflects their brand and where they position themselves. Yeah, the trade-offs are absolutely noticeable. Um, and there's a lot of talk about whether or not this is a smart idea for for Apple to launch this at this time. And you know, my my personal feeling is I wouldn't bet on Tim Cook doing something stupid. But the trade-offs are very noticeable. You have the battery pack, and the the device itself only lasts for about two hours. But Apple also put a 4K television on something the size of a postage stamp. I would not bet against their engineers to figure this out in the future. Some of the use cases are really interesting to me, Nick. Uh, you have watching movies, where it's going to basically be able to expand the screen to cinema size. Video conferencing, FaceTime, where it's going to scan your face. So when your friends and family are communicating with you, it's seeing sort of a 3D rendering. So it doesn't look like you're wearing snowboard goggles. And any of the use cases you, you want to focus in on? 
Well, I think the one thing that really stood out to me was, was the kind of, I don't know if it's the home movie experience, if that's the way to describe it. It's going to feature Apple's first 3D camera, which is going to let you really have an immersive uh, experience as you think about, you know, every Sunday I have a FaceTime call with my my parents. You know, I have a, I have a young child and, uh, you know, my, my parents live, live a long way away. And so FaceTime really opens up a new dynamic of interacting with folks. You can tell a story about how, uh, you know, with this technology, with kind of some of these, these kind of 3D home movie experiences, really opening a new dynamic of, of interaction from from long distances away, whether it's families, you know, here in the U.S. that where you know that the children have moved away, or folks that have, have moved across the world. I think that'll be an interesting application, and I find that a lot more exciting for your everyday consumer, more so than than some of these really niche kind of gaming experiences that you've you've heard. Um, you know, uh, uh, sold with, with other products. One question with this is, why do you have to have it? And I thought one compelling answer in the presentation was uh, they showed this father with two daughters capturing memories with the 3D video camera. And then with this device, it can take you right back to that memory in, in a life-size and three-dimensional way. I think that's going to be a pretty strong selling point to a lot of parents. And, and for me, at least, answers why do you have to have this in, in one instance? Whether or not it's replicable by other companies, we'll see. But I think that's going to be one of the big questions moving forward is, uh, you know, why, why do you have to have this $3,000 device or, you know, one that's a little bit cheaper when they unleash the, uh, the non-pro versions? Yeah, I think if you think about when the iPhone launch really opened a whole new medium of communication, the whole selfie video, uh, um, you know, YouTube, a lot of those things has really been opened up by um, by what the iPhone allowed. You could tell a story about where uh, where this technology opens up a new market. I think to get that type of uh, that type of of impact though on the market, you need to see the product widely distributed in a way that the iPhone um, has become today. If you think about when that product first came out, I remember my parents telling me, "Why the heck would you need a whole bunch of apps on your phone? Why would you need internet access?" And why would you want to pay the price point that that product came out as today? You could you could see a similar experience here. I will say one challenge that with kind of getting that distribution for this this virtual reality device as compared with the iPhone is you're not going to have companies like AT and T, Verizon, T-Mobile subsidizing the purchase of this uh, of this device in order to attach a, a wireless plan. This is Apple really having to sell this device on its own own merits without support from third parties, which I think was going to make um, getting to that distribution you see with the smartphone much harder. But uh, certainly an interesting innovation in this virtual reality headset world, a different approach relative to some of the other folks. And, uh, you know, Apple uh, uh, has a reputation to support, and they've certainly take a good first, taken a good first step into the space. Yeah, and the one one last uh, application that I think is interesting is is the productivity question. Is it going to be better to do spatial computing than than work on your laptop? Uh, Joanna Stern of the Wall Street Journal checked out the device and said, "Quote: Maybe the office is actually better in a face computer. I was able to scatter a few apps in the space over the coffee table, messages, notes, and Safari. Instead of having multiple monitors, you could just put these virtual screens around your room." End quote. She actually used the device, so I'm going to go based on based on her experience with it. So whether or not this this ends up replacing your your home laptop remains to be seen, but it is definitely a uh, definitely a compelling question moving forward. Yeah, I, I'm excited to see uh, what type of software applications come out for uh, for the device. Another another going back to the iPhone example, what really made the iPhone magical was the App Store, all the different things you could do with the device. So now that developers have their hands on on the, the software, on the hardware, and can can start innovating, I think we'll really see some interesting things come out into the market. Let's move on to Coinbase, because while Apple stock did not react to the presentation of these new goggles, Coinbase fell 15% this morning after the Securities and Exchange Commission announced that it was that it is suing the company for operating as an unregistered securities exchange and failing to register its staking as a service program. We'll get into what that means. But first, 
Nick, why do you think the market was taken by surprise on this announcement? You know, that's an interesting question. I'm unsure. The SEC has kind of telegraphed what they were going to do. So, this shouldn't have been a surprise to many market participants. On March 22nd, the SEC issued a Wells notice to Coinbase in relation to what has now become a complaint against the company. That says a Wells notice says we have it's a formal statement of intent to pursue enforcement action following an investigation. There's a, you know, Coinbase, the companies have an opportunity to rebut that. Certainly, that has taken place. And now, you know, the suit has been brought. But this risk has really always been known uh, for the business. They are not—they're offering what appear to be uh, securities and, and on an unregistered exchange. That's a violation um, of the law, I guess. If you wanted to come out with a, a narrative of why the market might, might be surprised, is listen, Coinbase is big and established. They've been operating for over a decade. They, they have made some efforts to to comply with the law, certainly more so than, than other um, operators out there on the market. And, and there's been some question. Well, because the SEC hasn't enforced so far, maybe they won't enforce. Um, Going into uh, going into the future, you think about Uber as an example. Broke a lot of laws and got big enough that the laws magically changed for them. Doesn't seem that that's likely to be the case here with Coinbase, though. Well, one of the things that Coinbase was presenting on, on a lot of its marketing was, "Hey, we're a publicly traded company, therefore we're more transparent than a lot of our competitors." And it seems that the the SEC has come out and said, "Well, maybe not so much." One thing the SEC is nailing down on Coinbase is their staking is a service, which they're arguing is an investment. So the the accusation is that Coinbase allegedly pools crypto assets which perform blockchain transaction validation services and then provides a portion of the rewards generated from this work to its customers whose assets were a part of the pool. So basically, you lend out your crypto, it uh, it validates other transactions that were on the blockchain, and you generate a little bit of interest based on the work that's being performed. So why would the SEC be so upset about, about that activity going on on Coinbase? Well, I mean, without getting you know too down in the weeds about staking and what it is, the gist of it is the SEC considers staking programs to be security offerings if the underlying assets that are being staked are considered securities. Um, there's a test to decide whether whether an asset is a security. It's called the Howey test. It's a three-pronged test. First, is there a financial investment being made? Are people risking money? I think that's a pretty easy pass here. Second, is there's a shared enterprise? So, are multiple people investing into a, a shared kind of uh, a bit operating business? Usually, the test for that is there, is there a third party managing the assets, pooling those assets together? Well, as you described, seems to be what's taking place here. And the third is an expectation of profits by the efforts of others. So, you by investing money into this enterprise, expecting to make money by what the enterprise Enterprise engages in. By that test, it uh, seems pretty clear uh, that most crypto tokens are, are securities. The SEC seems to uh, seems to agree with that. Under that logic, then Coinbase is operating an unregistered securities exchange in violation of the law. On top of that, there's not really a path under current regulation for Coinbase to really comply with the law and become a registered crypto exchange with the SEC. Coinbase has complained about regulatory clarity. That's fair, given that, you know the company has gone public and, and, and those types of things. We've gone over a decade without enforcement. But as things stand, if you enforce the laws on the books, there's really not a path forward for Coinbase or many of these other uh, companies to, to move forward. Forward um, as a crypto exchange. So, um, without a change in the underlying regulation, without you know some you know government entities coming out on the side of, of Coinbase to change things, um, the company may just need to cease operations in the U.S., which obviously would not be ideal for the uh, the going concern of the business. 
And it's not just Coinbase the SEC has taken aim at. It's also launched a similar complaint against Binance with the addition of launching its own unlicensed securities and encouraging investors to use its offshore platform to get around those pesky SEC rules. It's it's still early days, but do you think this is a game changer for these exchanges? Or you know, is it closer to what you described with Uber, where they're breaking laws and then the company's able to move on? Or maybe even Meta's privacy violations in the European Union, where they uh, pay a fine and then continue as is? Listen, I think the Binance case that there's a little bit more flagrant um, issues and kind of misuse misuse of of, of uh, customer assets than maybe in the case of uh, of Coinbase. But I mean, there was a pretty inflammatory quote from that uh, complaint. Uh, Binance's chief compliance officer quoted in the complaint saying, "We are operating as an expletive unlicensed securities exchange in the U.S. today." So it just goes to the idea that these companies have known they've been flirting with uh, with violating the law for, for for quite a while. I think if the SEC continues to enforce as they have done, you're going to have a really tough time maintaining operations in the U.S., which I think is is devastating to the investment thesis. And I think part of the reason you're seeing enforcement action now, as opposed to a number of years ago, is because these assets were going up in price a number of years ago, and people were making a lot of money. And this year, those assets have gone down in price, and people have lost a lot of money, including with the FDX scandal, people likely getting put in prison. And so, you know, from the perspective of the regulators, um, a lot more safety in being aggressive here today, uh, whereas in the past may have been more safety in, in being um, hands-off. So, you know, things change pretty quickly sometimes. It sure is hard to operate an unlikely Licensed Security Exchange in the USA, bro. Nick Seipel, uh, appreciate your time and your insight. Great to be here with you, Reagan. Retirement is something you plan decades for, but is it even good or healthy for you? Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp have more. Retirement, what a novel concept. Spending the last two to three decades of our lives in full-time leisure mode is a relatively recent development. In 1900, the average retirement age was 76, but most people didn't even live that long. Life expectancy from birth back then was under 50 years old, and people lucky enough to survive until 65 lived, on average, another 11 to 13 years. So, for most, retirement lasted just a handful of years, if they retired at all. Again, you were more likely to be dead. This is going to be such a fun episode. I can already tell. (laughs) I have some good news. Um, So, the modern version of retirement really began in the 1950s. The term senior citizen first entered popular use in 1955. The American Association of Retired Persons, now officially known as AARP, was founded in 1958. And the phrase golden years showed up in a 1959 ad campaign for Sun City, one of the first retirement communities in America. And at that point, the average retirement age was around 68. Fast forward to today, and the typical retirement age is between 61 and 65. We're retiring sooner and living longer. Americans who reach their mid-60s live approximately another 20 years on average, and people with higher levels of education and wealth, which I think describes most of the Motley Fool podcast listeners, are more likely to outlive the averages. You might think that spending decades free from the stresses of the workday would be beneficial to one's health, but that may not be the case. Studies that have looked at whether retirement is good for people have come to mixed conclusions. So, let's look at three measures of wellness and see what the evidence says about how they're affected by retirement. Let's start with physical health. So, bro, what do the studies tell us about whether retirement does a body good? Well, Alison, if you want to die sooner, retirement might just do the trick. Uh, At least that's the implication from some studies. So, for example, 
a 2017 study found that the death rate of males in the U.S. spiked at age 62, which is the most common age for claiming Social Security benefits. According to the study, the findings are evidence that males engage in more unhealthy behaviors once they retire. And then this, there's a study of almost 3,000 Americans who retired between 1992 and 2010. And those who retired at age 66 had an 11% lower risk of death than those who retired at 65, even after controlling for demographic, lifestyle, and health factors. But as we said before, a lot of this evidence is mixed. Uh, for example, there's an analysis of the University of Michigan's Health and Retirement Study, which is this ongoing survey of 20,000 Americans. And they found strong evidence that retirement improves reported health, mental health, and life satisfaction. And I think that conflicting evidence can be partially explained by the fact that people have different types of jobs and different types of retirements. Right? Some jobs put a lot of wear and tear on a body, and retirement can improve health for these types of workers. And, and the same if your job is extraordinarily stressful. On the other hand, many jobs aren't that taxing, and in fact, are good for your physical health because they get you out of bed in the morning and get you moving. Anyone who just retires to the couch in front of the TV is going to see their health suffer. And retirees, on average, do watch much more TV than people who are working. One study pegged it at almost 50 hours a week. I mean, can you blame them? It's a great time to be a watcher of television. <laughs> it is, that is true. <laughs> Speaking of your brain on drugs, let's move on to cognitive health. Is retirement good or bad for a brain? Well, the evidence here is also mixed, but it's clear that for many people, their jobs provided intellectual stimulation that isn't replaced when they retire. And the brain, like most parts of the body, gets weaker when it's not exercised. Experts call this the use it or lose it hypothesis. And here's what a couple of studies found. Uh, one published in 2021 concluded that postponing retirement is protective against cognitive decline, and the effect was more pronounced with, uh, for people with higher levels of education. And then another study published in 2021 surveyed more than 9,000 people over the age of 50 across 17 European countries and had them perform memory tests over a span of 13 years. And the study concluded that retirement was associated with a moderate decline in word recall and that memory decline accelerated after retirement. And interestingly, it was worse for countries with less robust pension systems, which suggests that financial stress could be bad for the brain in retirement. All right, let's move on to social well-being, because retirement conjures up visions of mornings spent with your buddies on the golf course and afternoons taking art classes at the rec center where some naked guy sits on a stool surrounded by easels, you know, the scene I'm talking about. So, does retirement result in more and better relationships because you now have time to spend with friends? Although that naked guy probably doesn't want to be your friend. Although maybe, but you know, probably best to keep it profesh. Yeah, probably so. Uh, and again, it depends on what you're retiring from and what you're retiring to. So if you're leaving a relatively solitary job and then after retiring, you're able to spend more time with friends and family, then retirement is good for your relationships. Unfortunately, it's the other way around for most people. Uh, work is one of their primary sources of social interaction. In fact, when retirees are asked what they miss most about working, the number one response is almost always the daily interactions they had with colleagues. A 2018 meta-analysis of 151 studies involving more than 700,000 people found that, quote, early retirees undergo a significant reduction of social integration, a negative experience that does not seem to be compensated through non-work activities such as volunteering, family duties, and hobbies. And a 2020 report from the National Academies of Sciences found that a quarter of Americans 65 and older are socially isolated. Now, being lonely is not only kind of just sad, but it can be bad for your health. 
Earlier this month, Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy issued a report entitled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, and included this in the introduction. Quote, loneliness is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day, and even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. And get this, over in England, they believe that this is such an important issue that the government created the role of Minister of Loneliness in 2018. Um, and just finally, on this topic, for many retirees, the most important relationship is their marriage. And the evidence suggests that the happiest retirees are those who are happily married, followed by single retirees and then retirees in unhappy marriages. The Wall Street Journal recently asked people about their concerns about retirement, and one 64-year-old said that, quote, at times I worry about my wife and me. I have heard of plenty of couples who, when they retire, they find they have nothing in common, and that scares the crap out of me. So, investing in your marriage is also a key part of retirement planning. It makes a lot of sense to me. When we were all social distancing and working from home during the dark times, um, I really felt lucky that I had my husband to keep me company. And a lot of fools who were single, who work work at the Motley Fool, they really struggled with the isolation. It was, yeah. it was sad to watch. Okay, bro. So this episode has truly been on brand with your awfulizing reputation. Uh, the thing that people spend most of their lives working toward, you've been saying will make them miserable. But surely it's not all bad, given that most people don't want to work forever. So what's your parting advice for how people can thrive in retirement? Yes, I guess it is uh, perhaps ironic that I'm the retirement expert here at The Motley Fool, and I've just given you all a parade of studies saying it's bad for you. So let me make this clear. Studies also show that retirees, on average, are pretty happy. In fact, in most cases, just as happy or happier than when they were working. Um, I personally have spoken with many retirees over the years, and I have often heard them say some variation of, my only regret is I didn't do it sooner. The key to a happy and healthy retirement is to figure out how to replace the good things that work provided. And this, of course, starts with determining whether your portfolio and benefits can replace the paycheck and health insurance that you receive from your job, because retirement is very difficult if you don't have enough money. But it also includes the social interaction and intellectual stimulation you got from working. A joint report from Edward Jones and AgeWave provided some examples on how hypothetical people could prepare for retirement. Uh, and here are five suggestions they had for someone who was in her late 50s and still working. So it starts with create a plan to test drive life in retirement. Number two was start playing a musical instrument or you know, maybe just pursue some other long-held goal that challenges your brain. Number three was to try out two different volunteer opportunities every week, and the evidence is very clear that people who regularly volunteer are happier than those who don't. Number four was organize monthly lunches with colleagues nearing retirement with plans to continue those lunches after they retire. And then number five was keep an ongoing list of activities to try in retirement. And finally, I'm just going to close by saying that when you look at the studies about happiness in retirement, they often talk about the importance of finding purpose. And, you know, that can be a pretty nebulous term, but I like the definition provided by Mark Friedman, who is the CEO of CoGenerate, and that's an organization that looks for ways to bring older and younger generations together to solve problems. And Friedman wrote, quote, purpose of feeling like the world needs you as much as you need it, that you have something to contribute, and that you still matter. And if you can make that part of your retirement, I think you'll be in good shape.
As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Balvey. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.